Well, good morning again, church family. Uh, Please open your Bibles with me to the 111th Psalm. We're going to be examining Psalm 111 uh, this morning, taking a brief two-week break from 1 Thessalonians. Um, We're going to take uh, this week and, of course, next week, Easter. We're going to look at Revelation 5 and uh, really 4 and 5 next week. And so uh, we're taking a brief break, but this really goes in a lot uh, with some of the themes we've been covering uh, in 1 Thessalonians. So hopefully it'll be an encouragement to you. I pray that you got your Bibles open and you're ready to dig into God's Word uh, with me. Psalm 111 says this, Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. In the assembly of the upright and in the congregation, the works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He has given food to those who fear him. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. He has declared to his people to the, work, to the power of his works and giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are verity and justice. All his precepts are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. First Baptist Church of Gray Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Would you join me in a word of prayer before we dig in? Um, Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this time that we are allowed by your grace to dig into your word so that we may know you better. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us in the scriptures. We pray that our eyes would be opened and our ears uh, would be attentive to all that you have to say to us this morning so that, Father, we could be made um, by the power of your spirit more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And of course, if there's anyone listening, Father, who doesn't know you by faith, Lord, we pray that they would hear the gospel clearly portrayed in this uh, message and through your word, and they would come to know you by saving faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, if you were able to follow along in the Hebrew, which I don't know if you are, but you would notice that this is actually what they call an acrostic poem. Starting with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, and ending in Tav, the last. And there are two lines in each of the verses except for verses 9 and 10. And there are three lines there. Uh, Each of these lines begin with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet going sequentially all the way through beginning to end. Now... Why in the world would anybody write like this, right? Was this a a school teacher teaching kids the ABCs? Well, maybe it was a piece of art. Uh, Perhaps it was done as a way to show how all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet uh, could be used to praise God. But most likely it actually was used for those to be able to remember these short phrases. So it would help hearers remember the praises of God. Why would this praise be so important for them to remember? Well, that's really kind of what we want to look at today. We want to look first at the call to praise God that's found in verse 1. 
Then we want to look at the reasons to praise God in the body of the psalm. And then finally, the call to fear God in verse 10. And as we do this, our prayer is that you will feel encouraged in your praise of God and perhaps reminded at some of the reasons you have to, to praise God that you have been neglecting recently. That you'll be encouraged to fear God and in fearing God, so be wise. Well, with all that said, let's dive in right into the beginning of this psalm and we meditate on its beauty uh, and its, its truth. First, we find the call to praise God. That's the first thing we find in this psalm. And we find it right there in verse 1. Verse 1 starts off with this proclamation. Praise the Lord, right? Uh, in the Hebrew, it's the word hallelujah. Uh, halal is the verb to praise. Hallelujah is the imperative you praise. And yah is who you are praising. And so Yahweh, God, hallelujah, you are praising God. It's a command to praise God. Uh, this is the call that the psalm begins with. And then the psalmist goes on to say, I will praise the Lord, how? With my whole heart. So there's the command, there's the summons, praise the Lord. Then we have the psalmist saying, praise the Lord wholeheartedly. Praise the Lord wholeheartedly. Now, we don't know, but this actually could have been a very much a solo that was being delivered at the temple during some great festival like the Passover and so it begins with the singular, I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. It's how David kind of begins Psalm 34. We know that one, right? I will bless the Lord. But, but there, David said he would do so at all times. Here in Psalm 111, the psalmist begins with the concern, not so much that the praise be constant, but that the praise be sincere. We know that this was a problem from, from those who worshiped the Lord in the temple in the Old Testament, right? Isaiah 29, verse 13, the, the Lord says through Isaiah, Inasmuch as these people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me. Well, our praiser here, the writer of this psalm, would have none of that. Right? He will not come into the presence of God half-heartedly and mumble his praises. He will praise God with vigor and energy that shows that his whole being is engaged in this all-consuming task. Not only would he praise the Lord sincerely or wholeheartedly, though, he would also praise the Lord corporately. Did you notice that? In verse 1, it concludes by saying, in the assembly of the upright of the con and in the congregation. That is among the worshipers of the Lord that were gathered in Jerusalem. Now, as I said previously, he likely wrote this song to lead some people in praise. And friends, it's just good for us to give praise to God in public. Do you know that? I feel like sometimes we don't want to do that because we don't want to come across pharisaical. But friends, think about it. We enjoy God's blessings publicly. Of course, we don't want to come across not wholeheartedly, like we said previously, but we also want to praise him publicly. It is right for us to give thanks and praise to God publicly for enjoying his blessings. Of course, as Christians, uh, we know we are addressed by the psalmist here, and we are to give praise to God. That's not news to us, right? We know that we're to give praise to God because that's what Christ did. We read in Luke chapter 5 where he heals uh, the paralytic man who was let down from the mat. And the people who saw it praised God. 
We read in Matthew 11, Jesus saying in verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Christ praised God. Therefore, we ought to praise God. And, and not only that, more amazingly, he was himself the object of praises. Uh, you remember what we're worshiping, uh, what we're celebrating today, what today represents. We really don't celebrate it, but what today represents. It represents the triumphal entry, right? The triumphant entry. His last week of his earthly ministry, Jesus enters in, and what do the people begin to do? They begin to praise him. Well, we know that some of the Pharisees got really upset at the people praising Jesus. But do you remember Jesus' response uh, to the Pharisees getting mad at them? In Luke 19, verse 40, he says, I tell you that if these should keep silent, what? The stones would immediately cry out. This is how certain Jesus was of creation's obligation to bring praise to God. And as a creature, we are obligated to bring praise to God. As Christians, we are be part of that proud, uh, part of that crowd that tells of his greatness and sings his praises. <coughs> Excuse me. Like the psalmist here, we should labor to see that we do this wholeheartedly. And can I ask you this, this question this morning? Are your praises to God, are they, are they wholehearted? Are they wholehearted praises? How can you tell? Well, friends, simply take the time to investigate every corner of your heart. When you are happy, do you sing praises to God? Well, it says we should do that in James, right? Or how about when, on the other hand, you're facing incredible difficulty, particularly in your Christian life? Then do you praise God? Or is it the only time you praise Him on Sunday mornings at church when we sing? And then really then it's only with your lips and even then only sometimes with your mouth not really all the way wide open. You're kind of mumbling the lyrics of the songs. What does it mean to praise God wholeheartedly? Don't think in order to be real, something has to be private. We've often said that our Christian lives are to be personal and public. Personal does not mean private. Uh, we should enjoy being able to come together on the Lord's Day, singing God's praises to His people. Uh, we should love to hear the voices of those who have been redeemed by the Lord. It's a natural thing for us as Christians to delight and rejoice in. But I pray that we may see a culture that's developed here as a church family that realizes the importance of God's praise. So we want to give ourselves to it here. We want to make it central that when we sing, we really, really sing and we sing loud. We live lives, not even just singing, but lives that are transformed by our praises to God. That it's in our conversation, that's in our greetings and our departures from one another. We praise God. We want to live in a way that causes God to be praised throughout the week, wherever we are. So let's pray that God would bring about us in a really shocking and provocative way of living that provokes praise to him because of how we live. That people would see how we live and it would provoke praise. Well, this is our call to praise. The psalmist spends most of this short psalm uh, now giving us reasons. This is point two. The reasons for praise. What are the reasons for praise? Well, there's really two categories here that he breaks this down in. The first is we praise God for his works. We praise God for his works. And, and more specifically, 
He calls us to praise God for all of his works. Praise God for all of his works. In fact, read verses 2 and 3 along with me here. The works of the Lord are great, verse 2, studied by all who have pleasure in them. Verse 3, his work is honorable and glorious and his righteousness endures forever. Uh, this inspired poet, this psalmist, imagines God's people delighting in God's work. So he is searching them out and pondering them. Uh, these works are, he says, great, they're glorious, they're majestic, they're splendid. From God's creation of this whole world to this solar system with its meteor showers to the galaxy to the whole universe. Down to him providing for us so very carefully, even down to the most minute matters. In all these ways, uh, God shows us how remarkable he really is. So we can say with Moses about our God in Deuteronomy 32, 4, he is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Uh, church family, if you're listening to this this morning, I, I, I want to readily admit that, that God's glories are so great that you really don't even need to be a Christian to see these things. Uh, there are things, uh, these are, are things, the things we're talking about, they're things that every person on this planet should be able to see and give testimony to what Paul calls God's invisible attributes. His eternal power and divine nature having been understood by the things that are made clearly seen by them. All of us. Uh, if you're a scientist, if you're school children, if you're a mother or father, Christians, non-Christians, we can appreciate the fact that there is a God, that he is the creator of the world and he rules it. We are preserved by him and so there is so much ground, even if you're not a Christian, for praising and thanking him as the great God that he is. Yet we need to heed these instructions of the psalmist. Uh, so we praise God for all of his works, but we should also certainly praise God specifically for his work of redemption. We praise God for his work of redemption. The psalmist comes on to that in verse 4 where he says, He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. Uh, these aren't just any, uh, any random wonderful works here that he's referring to. This word for wonderful works, uh, it's used throughout the account in Exodus to describe what God does. Uh, this is the phrasing that Moses uses in proclaiming what he would perform among the Egyptians. That Moses then praises God for uh, after the work of the Red Sea in Exodus 15, 11, Moses writes, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing Wonders, doing wonderful works. The psalmist is referring specifically to the working of miracles that God did to bring his children out of slavery in Egypt. So these are the wonders that he's specifically urging to be remembered and proclaimed. Of course, this is, this is why the Passover was established. It was in commemoration of the Exodus. God said it was established specifically to teach his children to remember and to be a means of teaching him of his great and wonderful works. The Lord is gracious, the psalmist goes on, and full of compassion. 
He reminds us uh, of this. And, and God is so often described this way in all throughout the scriptures. Psalm 145 verses 8 and 9. The Bible says the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. You know, it's really interesting. If, if you go through the Old Testament, these attributes mention that God is gracious, that God is compassionate. It becomes the grounds often for people appealing for repentance, asking for repentance. I think of Hezekiah, Joel, Jonah, all of them cite God as being gracious and compassionate for being the reason why they will repent or will appeal to others to repent. The mighty creator of the universe, who is completely just and righteous, friends, he is also compassionate and gracious. We've experienced that in our own lives if you're a Christian, haven't you? Now back to our psalm. In verse 5, we find the psalmist reminding us of how God provides food for those who fear him. So we praise God for all his works, for his redemption, but we also praise God for his work of provision. His work of provision. While he does say for those who fear him, we know this applies uh, to any time. Uh, in fact, verse 5, let's go ahead and read that. He has given food to those who fear him. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. I think the right reason he uses that phrase is because of the context. He's specifically drawing our attention to God's provision of his people while they were in the wilderness coming out of Egypt. Uh, you can even render that word given as provided, past tense. Uh, we know that God is the one who provides us with food. We say that in the Lord's Prayer, don't we? Give us this day our daily bread. That's no surprise to us. But I think what was in mind here was God's provision for his people when he gave them manna and quail while they were in the wilderness. And so the psalmist again continues in verse 5 about our great God. He says, he will ever be mindful of his covenant. The covenant which he gave to his people and giving them the promised land. The one he had given to his people in Mount Sinai. Even uh, behind that, there's the covenant he made with Abraham and his descendants when he promised to give them the land. Uh, he's reestablishing that, reminding uh, the people of the faithfulness of God to be mindful to his covenant, all in his provision. He goes on and says this in verse 6. He has declared to his people the power of his works and giving them the heritage of the nations. This is referring, I believe, uh, to the time now in Old Testament history where there's the divine taking of the land of Canaan, of the wicked inhabitants of it, where God takes it from those Canaanites and gives it to his people. It was God who did that. God did that by his power. We read in Psalm 78, our scripture reading this morning, verse 55. He also drove out the nations before them, allotted them an inheritance by survey, and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. Uh, so we know that this is the case. Verse 7 says this, uh, The works of his hands are verity and justice. Uh, that means that this is a God that we serve that does no wrong. His works are perfect. Uh, friends, this is a God who has marvelous work, who has worked uh, many things, and each and every one of those works is worthy. It makes him deserving, causes him to be deserving of praise. If we were just to dwell on the works of who God is and what he's done, friends, we would have ample supply of reasons to praise him. 
Here in verse 7, though, there's this transition that the psalmist makes from praising God for his work to praising him specifically for his word. In the second half of verse 7, he says this, all his precepts are sure. So he's changing now from considering his works to particularly considering his word. We know Psalm 19, 7, one of my favorite verses, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. All of God's words can be trusted. That's the testimony of Scripture from beginning to end. He goes on describing these precepts in the first line of verse 8. He says, they stand fast forever and ever. And so just as God's covenant with his people is forever, so his precepts are forever. That's what we see here. Uh, we can praise him for his word because we know his precepts are forever. He says these precepts are done in truth and uprightness, just like all of, other, of God's other works as well. So God's word never changes. God's word never needs to change. Now, I don't think many Israelites at the time this psalm was being written were thinking of God's word being changing. I don't think they would have needed to know that after they've seen the law given at Mount Sinai. I mean, you know, it's inscribed on stone, right? It gives you the thought that it won't be easy to erase or change in any way. You're not just going to edit that and hit the delete button on those. That's the idea. You understand that God's word, it lasts Forever, And let me just say, you should know this, what we understand ourselves to be doing and going verse by verse through texts of Scripture is giving out the same word of God that was written there. We understand that what the psalmist said here is actually inspired, God breathed out by God. So we give ourselves every week to coming together and studying God's unchanging word. Praying that his Holy Spirit would cause us to understand what it means for us today. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Friends, the word of God is unchanging. So if you believe this, because it, it's easy for us to say that, isn't it? Yeah, we believe his precepts are forever. But what's your practice of that look like, friends? If you believe this, why don't you give more time to studying God's word, right? If you believe that God's word is in fact the unchanging revelation of his will, why don't you, not the person sitting next to you, not the person that you're comparing your Bible reading to and thinking that you're doing enough, why don't you give more time to study God's word? Do you know that time spent studying God's word is never time lost? You ever thought about that? Can you ever remember a time, if you're truly a Christian, that you spent 30 minutes or an hour just reading Scripture and leave going, golly, why in the world did I waste all that time doing that? No, that's not our experience. But how many things throughout the week do you think about afterwards? Oh, man, why did I spend so much time watching that? Why did I spend so much time doing that? But if you, you really never thought about that when it comes to studying Scripture, have you? Church family, how long does it take us to learn? Time studying Scripture is never a lost investment. It is a wise thing to do. And so, church, as we follow the psalmist leads, we're giving praise to God and praising God for His steadfast word and in giving ourselves to study it as an essential part of our time together. 
So this morning, this week, throughout our lives, oh, we praise God for His Word. And, and we give time to study it in prayerful effort to obeying it. Because that's also part of knowing God's Word. There's a certain variety of Christian perversion, I think, that builds up around people who begin to study God's Word. And it, it comes with people who have a lot of knowledge about the Bible, but have a life unaffected by it. Uh, that is a particular offensive thing, in my opinion, to God. It's not my opinion, actually. That's a particular offensive thing to God. Uh, it, because it makes it seem as if His Word has no power. We are to learn God's Word, not only to teach it, but to obey it. In fact, in verse 9, the Bible says uh, in, in Psalm 111, verse 9, He has sent redemption to His people. Now, most immediately, that would have been the redemption in mind uh, that we talked about in Exodus. But since we don't know exactly when this psalm was written, it's also very likely that that could be the return from the exile. Because God also provided redemption for His people there. As Christians, though, we know the redemption we have uh, and more than any other is the redemption that all those others pointed to. It's the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That we have in Christ. Jesus himself used this language of redeeming. He says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus understood himself to come and provide redemption. This is the redemption that we have come to know as Christians. Now, if you don't think you've ever experienced that redemption, the good news is you can today. God who made us, who is this great creator, has persevered us with us through our disobedience and through our rebellion against him. Not only persevered through that, but he has deliberately continued to seek us. And so we read in scripture that the Messiah was prophesied and in Jesus he came. That God himself had taken on flesh, living a perfect life and dying on the cross for our place, for our sins. Taking God's just punishment for our sins, exhausting it on himself. We know that God accepted this because death did not hold him. <clears throat> he was raised from the dead and now he lives interceding at the right hand of God the Father for all those who repent of their sins and turn to Christ to believe on him. This is how we can have this new life today. It's by turning from our sins and trusting in Christ. Well, in verse 9 of Psalm 111, we read as well, He has commanded His covenant forever. So just as His precepts are forever and ever, so too His covenant. His covenant is forever. It's one of the reasons why we praise God for His word, because we know His covenant is forever. His covenant founded on His unchanging character. There's nothing able to change it. This covenant God has established His covenant with His people, and it's forever. Of course, the covenant mentioned here is the eternal covenant between the Father and Son for the redemption of His people. Those Paul will call the true sons of Abraham, the true, true children of the promise, the true Israel. This is our covenant-keeping, covenant-making God. And friends, holy and awesome is his name. So if you're a Christian, we praise God for this eternal covenant to save you. We rejoice in this. Let's not be slow to sing his praises for this redemption as we gather together. And let's not be slow to live out his praises with each other. Praise God. This psalm is saying praise God for his works and his words they endure. 
Well, the psalmist concludes uh, with another call. If this God is this great God that we've been praising him for being, if he calls us to praise this God, and then he calls us and gives us reasons why we should praise this God for his wonderful work and his wonderful word, then we shouldn't be surprised that we find at the end a call to fear God in verse 10. And I know this is not, I admit, a word we use much today when it comes to talking about God. And the psalmist has already prepared this for us by mentioning that in verse 9, that his name is Awesome, which uh, may seem different to us in the 21st century, but in Hebrew, the, the word literally means fear-inducing. Uh, and he then reminds them what God is like as he goes on in verse 10 saying, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Of course, you've heard that before, haven't you? It's a common theme in the Bible we see in Proverbs and Job and Isaiah. We read in Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Isaiah 33, 5 and 6, the Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with his justice and righteousness. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability uh, of your times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Friends, there is no overestimating the importance of a right understanding of the fear of God. Such fear is, it's really the natural response to beginning to understand truly what God is like. Uh, we naturally fear him, and this fear is the beginning. Uh, you can also read that as, as kind of the chief part, right? It's kind of like our word for first. First can mean where you begin. It can also mean the ultimate. Well, the Hebrew word's just the same. That's what the fear of the Lord is. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the initiation of it, but it's also the consummation of it. It's the reverence that we have toward God. And, and I don't know about you, but oh, that the, that the world around us would hear this, that they would learn this, that they would consider all the false wisdoms that our world peddles today. And not only that, but the false wisdoms and the bitter fruit that those false wisdoms bear, from Buddhism to communism to Islam to postmodernism to nationalism, false ideas about the meaning and purpose of life, and they bear bitter fruits. The Bible tells us in the Old and New Testaments that the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. That's in parallel with this, parallel with this next line that comes up in our text. That means a fear of the Lord involves following his precepts. So to understand the truth about what God has done in Christ and to obey what he has told us is the beginning of the wise life, he intends you to live. Do you realize that this morning? God's law is something you are supposed to follow. Maybe you're one of those who have gone through life, who goes through this feeling, some sort of religious stirring sometimes, but then you are easily lulled by the gifts you thank God for. Lulled into forgetting God the giver. Uh, does this happen to you? Especially in the Easter season? If so, I beg you to remember, you are not the one who is praised in this psalm. You are not sovereign. You are not immortal. Friends, you will die and give account to the one who is truly the eternal king. At one point, John the Evangelist described some torn religious leaders of the day in John chapter 12. He described them in his narrative as believing in Jesus. But get this, John writes, But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Verse 43, For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. That really just about sums it up, doesn't it? 
They loved the praise from men more than they loved praise from God. That would just be a great epitaph to put over your grave, wouldn't it? Be great to go on your, heads, uh, your tombstone. You don't want that said about you, do you? They loved praise from men rather than praise from God. That's chilling, isn't it? God is the one we are to fear and steer our lives to accordingly. Paul wrote this about the human condition in Romans chapter 2 and 3. On the one hand, on chapter 2, uh, he says that a man who has been given a new heart by God, such a man, he says in verse 29, whose praise is not from men, but from God. But then in the very next chapter in Romans 3, when he's giving that long summarizing list of quotations about our natural state and sin, he concludes with this quotation in Psalm 36. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Church family, uh, this idea of the fear of God it is a crucial idea in the Bible. It's a crucial idea in your own life. You do live in some kind of ultimate regard for someone or something. Uh, maybe it's yourself. Maybe it's some kind of idealized standard. Maybe it's a changing idea of God. But friends, we will give an account to God. We need to acknowledge that in our hearts and our lives today. You know, it's interesting. Often the fear of the Lord is it's associated with the judgment that's coming. In fact, in the book of Revelation 14, an angel appears and announces with a loud voice in verse 7, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. Friend, pray that God would liven your conscience now. That's really our prayer. It'd be better for you to hear the accusations of your conscience against you now while there's still a time of grace than that final day where you stand before the throne of God. There is no time then for repentance and change. Pray that God would give you a, a conscience sensitive to Him. Acknowledge Christ. Fear Him alone. Regard Him as your ultimate judge because He is. Well, we should bring this to a close. How will you obey this call? Will you fear God? And will your fear of God cause you to have regard for him and his words so you pay attention to him? Wisdom comes through teaching, through time, and through trouble. Listen to God's word. Live it out, uh, even when times are difficult. That is how you gain wisdom. And, and true praise will engender true fear. True fear of God will cause you to praise him for the wonderful, magnificent, compassionate, gracious God that he is. Do you see how important this topic is? This is fundamental to the biblical representation of religion. When we read of the early church in the book of Acts, it wasn't any particular ethnicity that marked them off. They weren't all part of one place in the Middle East. What marked the early church was their allegiance to God above every other authority. That is, it was their united, unique fear of God that made them one. Let's pray that God causes us as a church to be marked by that wisdom. More than any amount of just mere knowledge. Because you know, a lack of knowledge is bad, but a lack of wisdom is worse. Because worse than not knowing is knowing what's right and not doing it. Education can give you the knowledge, but only grace can give you the wisdom to obey God, to fear Him supremely, to love Him, and to heed His word. 
As the psalmist here says at the end, summing up the reality that causes us to fear God, he says, his praise endures forever. Why? Because God is forever praiseworthy. A day never dawns that God is not worthy of our praise. He is eternally unchanging, a righteous, great, glorious, majestic, wonderful, compassionate, gracious, provident, covenant, powerful, faithful, just, trustworthy, steadfast, just, and holy, awesome God. And all of that is talked about in this short little psalm with just 10 verses. Can you imagine the richness of the description of God throughout all the Bible as you come to see who this great God is? Church family, as we enter into this holy week, what an opportunity it is to think about all that we have to thank God for, all that we have to praise him for. May he help us to gain the wisdom that we really need even more than we realize. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray that you would help us to examine our own hearts and know them truly. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us that we would see what a God you are, how worthy you are of all of our praise, trust, fear, obedience, love, and allegiance. God, would you truly win our hearts to you? We acknowledge you as our true creator, as the one who brings us redemption in Christ, as the one who is the rightful Lord of our lives. You are the one who has given every true child here a new birth through your Holy Spirit. Lord, none of these things we could have done ourselves. We can neither create ourselves nor recreate ourselves in Christ. So we give you our praise, we give you our thanks, and we give you our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Church family, if you're listening to this and you have any questions about anything you heard today, if I can encourage you in any way, please reach out to us. Uh, let us know. We'd love the opportunity to pray with you. Uh, we pray that this would encourage you uh, to spend this week really not so much planning the festivities of Easter, but thinking about this true risen Savior and all the reasons we have to praise him, to fear him, and in so doing, be wise. And of course, if you're here um, listening to this this morning and you know you do not have this relationship with the Lord, you know that on your tombstone it could easily say they feared man rather than fearing God, uh, then friend, I'd love the opportunity to walk with you uh, in further detail the gospel that was explained to you today and teach you about the redemption that Christ has accomplished on behalf of people who repent, place their faith in them. However, we can help you, church family. We're here to serve. We love you. God bless. Have a wonderful, wonderful week.